Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. Glory be to the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, now and ever and unto the ages of all ages, amen. I can't tell you all uh, how happy I am to be here and how much I really, really believe um, in what you all are part of and what you all are doing. Jesus' final commandment to us is to go. Um, and a lot of us um, will not will not participate in a mission trip, will not go out of our comfort zone, will not reach out to those who may or may not know the Lord Jesus Christ or may or may not know Him the way we know Him. And oftentimes we say we haven't been called. It's really sad because we, ha we have been called. Jesus has called all of us. The, the call to the majority is to go. The call to the few is to stay. And this is something that is, is just, it's, it's just, it's just on, on being revived um, in the world all around. Um, and there's always a reluctance towards missions because there's always a reluctance to go out because we're so comfortable in our comfort zone. So it's, it makes me so happy to see so many of you who are willing to take something so precious like your vacation time or the very little time that you have to spend with family or with friends um, and to go out and to serve the Lord. I can't thank you enough for that and I'm, I ha all I can say is I'm proud. I'm really proud to be here and humbled to be, um, to be amongst you. So the theme for the conference is um, Romans 12.2, which can really easily be divided into two parts, and so that's what we're going to do. We're going like, to do like one talk and then followed by another. There's a constant pressure for us to conform, to go along with the societal norms, behaviors um, of any group of people, to follow their opinions, to do what everyone else is doing. The reason for conformity is very simple. I mean, all of these things are so innate to us. They're so, they're so ingrained in us that maybe they're not things that you stop to think about. To be honest with you, I didn't stop to think about them until I was trying to read and research and learn something new so I could share something new with you. The reason we conform is so that we can have organized society. Conformity allows us to, to have predictable behaviors. So. If everybody is just going to do whatever they want, or everybody's just going to do whatever they think to seem to be right at any given moment, you have chaos. For example, you have a schedule for the conference. You received, you registered for the conference, you paid for the conference, you came to the conference, you went to the registration desk, they gave you a schedule. When they gave you that schedule, you actually have the choice to do whatever you want. Much to the dismay of George and the other organizers, you don't have to follow the schedule. You can do whatever you want. You can show up whenever you want. You can leave whenever you want. You can do anything, right? Just because there's a schedule there doesn't mean you have to follow it. But we won't have a conference. We won't confer, we won't convene, we won't have a convention. There will be, there will be a di divergence of human beings if everybody just kind of does whatever they want randomly. So it makes sense, it makes sense that there's a certain degree of conformity in culture and there's a certain degree of conformity in society. 
right? And the idea of the whole idea of conformity and conformism in the workplace, especially, but elsewhere in society, societal norms, and so on, is so that you can have predictable behavior. You are fully expecting that when your light turns green and the light turns red for the next guy, that you are safe to go. If somebody decides to not conform all of a sudden, right, you're going to get T-boned, right? And that's, that's bad, right? So conformity is not necessarily a bad thing. But we have to ask ourselves, to what are we conforming? We have to take, we have to take the whole statement. Do not be conformed to this world, right? And we're going to talk a lot more um, about, about being conformed to a heavenly society. In the workplace, in the workplace, conformity is really a means of keeping the status quo. In fact, there's lots of literature talking about nonconformity as the way that the greatest businesses grow. We'll get to some of that. I want to share with you a story before we go deeper and deeper into this. So my first rotation ever was like before clerkship. I was one of those eager beavers who spent my summer between Med 2 and Med 3 um, at a, uh, do, doing a rotation in what I thought that I would want to do, which was pediatric surgery, which is what I ended up doing later. Um, and I realized something a, a day or two into my rotation. Despite the fact that I was working with one of the most innovative pediatric surgeons in the world, I realized something, that my ideas were not welcome. Every time we would be like struggling, so I'd say, well, wow, why don't we try this? Or how about if we try that? Now, I understand it's very presumptuous of the Med 2, not yet even Med 3, to be telling this world-renowned pediatric surgeon maybe what he should do, right? Very quickly, I learned that a small dose of humility goes a long way. But I learned, I learned through the rest of my medical career something else, that new ideas are not necessarily welcome, particularly, particularly in very old professions like medicine. What did go a long way for getting me reference letters and helping me jump through hoops and get positions and work with great people and, and, and be productive in the lab and elsewhere is just doing what I'm told. Doing it, doing it faster than anyone else, harder than anyone else, more than anyone else, etc. Earlier than anyone else in surgery. That's what I learned. And it stuck with me. And towards the end of my training, when I wanted to start finding new ideas, can I tell you something really sad? I had difficulty. I had difficulty. I had difficulty reviving that innocent, naive John, who one day was suggesting new ideas to the seasoned pediatric surgeon. The biggest problem with conformity is kind of like the biggest problem we have fitting into those genes. Or for me, it just snowed for the first time in Toronto, so I, I brought out my big winter coat, right? And here I was realizing that I was, just, I was just about an inch away from being able to actually close it, right? A winter coat in sub-zero weather is not very helpful if you can't close it, right? So here I was trying to squeeze myself 
into this coat. And I think we can, we've all had experiences of that in, with varying different articles of clothing. The problem with conformity is you're trying to fit someone, someone unique, someone special, someone whom God has created to be just themselves into a mold that isn't them. That's what conformity is. It's taking the outward shape. It's taking the outward shape of something of something else, right? It's kind of like it's kind of like a body swap. When I was a kid, I would I would pretend that I wasn't me and that I was doing things and then they would, these pretends would turn into lies and then these lies would grow and I would always get caught because I'm a very bad liar, right? So right off the bat, first thing, one of the first things I told my wife when we were like planning our, our wedding is I'm a really bad liar, right? If I lie, you will know that I'm lying and I know I'm a really bad liar so I will probably never lie to you. You can ask her when you meet her if I've held my, stay true to my word. The most common reason kids get bullied in school is not actually because they're funny looking or because they're different or because of because all of those things. It's not because the things that are being said about them are true, not usually anyways. The most common reason kids get bullied at school is because they're trying to be friends with people that don't want to be their friends. They're trying to fit in with people that don't want to be with them. So those people, when they have like an innocent bystander, what do they do? They make fun of them, right? And that's how bullying happens. It can, it, most bullying can be cured with very simple avoidance, right? It's all of this trying to fit into something that I'm not, trying to be somebody that I'm not. And all of this begs the question of what my true identity is. Going back to the workplace and to like all the psychology and the workplace kind of stuff, conformity has been demonstrated to decrease engagement, decrease productivity, and decrease innovation. And I was gonna present like a whole bunch of slides with research and all this stuff, and then I realized that you all, can, you all are experts probably at internet research, and you can find all this stuff for yourselves. What you will probably want from me is what is, what does heaven have to say about this? What does God have to say about this? For those of us who are in leadership positions, it helps for us to really look at this and to really remember that allowing some nonconformity in the workplace, empowering the dissenters, the people who don't always agree, empowering them to speak, asking them to be the first person to speak in a meeting helps a lot. With a lot of the evangelism stuff that we do, not in like in the in the, like the third world or nor in the in the like you know the, the slums of the inner city but but amongst business people and professionals and so on we, we do these dinner discussion series and one of the elements of the dinner discussion series is discussion and the thing that makes discussion work the best you know what it is well it's a it's a discussion leader who actually wants to listen but the second most helpful thing in leading a discussion is actually to get the person who's most likely to disagree with you to speak first and to listen to what they have to say and to accept it. Doesn't mean you agree with it, but you accept it. So we do, we, you know, we do this talk called Who is Jesus? 
and we get people from all different walks of life. And we spend about 20 minutes presenting historical proof that Jesus of Nazareth, a man, lived in the first century, whether he, and he died, and whether he rose from the dead and all of this, that stuff is a little bit more difficult to bring historical proof to, but we present all of this historical proof. I kid you not, at every discussion table, there's one person who says, not really sure if this guy Jesus like ever existed. Like maybe he was just like maybe maybe it's just all made up. And you're thinking to yourself, like, really? Like, come on now. We just presented like 20 minutes worth of historical evidence, not from Christian sources, that there's a man named Jesus of Nazareth that lived. That's it. I'm not saying he's God, I'm not saying he rose from the dead, I'm just saying. We train all of our discussion hosts. That, that that statement is going to come. And when it comes, you just say, that's very interesting. <laughs> I've never heard of that before. Tell me more about that. If you don't have glasses that you can take off and stick in your mouth, get some. You're going to need to stick something in your mouth. Right? People say the funniest things, right? But if we, if we just, if we don't attack them, if we empower them, Right? That empowers discussion. Accepting things that you, everyone knows you don't believe, empowers people to say what they really mean. And that is the first step in building bridges, and in, that's the first step in building trust and building friendships. All of that has a place in the workplace. Any of you out there who are leaders, read about this stuff. It's a pain in the butt. It's a pain in the butt to have a whole crew of people who don't agree with you. But you know what? It makes your organization that much richer. And we all who are under leadership, if we can do this with humility, have the power to enrich our organizations in the same way. In Romans chapter 8, St. Paul reminds us, you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but have received a spirit of adoption as sons which we cry out, Father. Before we start talking about conformity and about trying to fit in those skinny jeans and about how we're trying to fit into a shape that may or may not belong to us, let's, let's pause for a second and see what it is, what is it that we're trying to fit into. Not the shape, not the bottle we're trying to fit into. What is it that we're trying to stuff in the bottle? Who are you? What is your identity? Where do you belong? There's nothing in the universe more empowering than feeling loved. There were two disciples. Jesus had many disciples, but let's talk about two of them. Not that I'm anybody to talk about anybody at all, but two disciples. One of them says to Jesus, I love you more than all of these. I will follow you wherever you go. In the courtyard of the high priest, he denies him. His name is Peter. Another disciple describes himself as the one whom Jesus loved. He followed Jesus to the cross. His name is John. St. Peter, of course, repents and is, you know, you know, an amazing saint. But the point is this. There's nothing in the universe more empowering than feeling loved. If you've ever been in a, an oppressive relationship 
or an oppressive workplace or, diff or you've been persecuted or you've had difficult times, there's nothing that keeps you going through that than knowing and feeling loved. Loved by other people, loved by family, loved by your children, your spouse, your whoever, but most of all, loved by God. And folks, not to be morbid or anything, but like a very sad reality is that if we identify ourselves by anything other than our relationship to God, it's temporary. Five years ago, I was a surgeon. Now I'm a priest. Maybe one day I'll retire. I don't know, become an artist or a retiree or whatever, right? <laughs> you know? I don't know, they haven't quite worked retirement into priesthood yet. When people tell me, why did you switch careers? I thought most people switch careers three or four times in a lifetime. That was my first career change. My close friends pat me on the shoulder and tell me, and you're last. You're kidding yourself. But let's be serious, right, for a moment. I'm a husband. Well, what if God decides to take the love of my life one day to heaven? And he takes her home. Isn't that where she's going? Isn't that where she belongs? She certainly deserves better than me. What if he takes her home to heaven? I won't be a husband anymore. I'll be a widower. I'm a father. What if my daughter makes me the proudest father in the world and preaches the gospel successfully in nations that are hostile to it and is martyred? Will I still be a father in a certain sense? You see, all of these things that seem so real, so tangible, so like you can hold them, they're not. Like, life is but like steam, smoke. Here, one day, gone tomorrow. My only real and true identity is that I am a beloved child of God. I am a beloved child of God. I'll tell you something, this, this series isn't about identity, but I've done many conferences about identity. Every single time I catch myself saying, I am so great, or I am so stupid, or I am a priest, or I am, I correct myself and I say, I am a beloved child of God. I am a beloved child of God. I probably say that to myself a thousand times a day. And it isn't enough, because I'm still saying I am other things. And none of those other statements are completely true, or at least none of them are as true as that I am a beloved child of God. I'm loved by God, and I am His Son. And I can hold His hand, and I can reach out to Him at any moment of time. Some of that is going to fit into the skinny jeans of this world that this world wants you to conform into. And some of it is not. And if I indeed am a beloved child of God, then my citizenship is in heaven. I belong in heaven. That's where I belong. That's where I fit in. It's okay if I don't fit in here. I fit in there. The problem is when I dissociate myself from heaven. The problem is when I lose my ties there. No ambassador 
goes overseas and starts building a, an empire for himself where he is. That's called treason. Right? No temporary worker is sent somewhere to go work there and starts buying real estate or, you know. St. John Chrysostom is very honest. He says, he says, you know why no one believes your gospel? He's saying this in the 4th and 5th century, 4th century, 5th century. It's funny like how relevant it is today. He says, you know why nobody believes your gospel? Because you're telling people to follow the man who says lay up treasures for yourselves in heaven. And they can hear the workmen building palaces for you behind you. People are like confused, like they don't, they don't understand. Like I thought you said lay, lay up your treasures in heaven, but you're building my citizenship is in heaven. If I feel like I don't belong, that's not necessarily a bad thing. In fact, that may very well be a sign I'm on the right path. My place has been well prepared for me. St. Paul says that He has raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. You know, one of the reasons I really, really love the Coptic Orthodox Church is because it's, it's like, if you wanted, like, if you wanted to write, if, to, to read the book, like, Church for Idiots, you know what I mean? Like, there's all of that idiot series, right? It would have, like, one page in it, I think, I think. It would have one page in it. You'd open it and it would say, the Coptic Orthodox Church. It's like made so that no matter where you are on the intellectual spectrum, right? Like some people have like very high intelligence, all of you, and then some of us, you know, we're like, you know, more like, you know, the, right, the, you know, the bottom swimmers, right? You know, it's made, the Coptic church is made for everybody, right? Even as bottom swimmers, we can figure it out. You walk in from the west, and you walk towards the east. Like when you walk into the church, you know, unsuspectingly, without thinking too much, you're walking in, right? You walk in, what do you see as you walk in? You see the bosom of the Father, that like that rounded thing at the very eastern wall, because you're walking from west to east. What do you see in there? Well, you see Jesus sitting on the throne, right? So it's called the bosom of the Father, and Jesus is sitting in the bosom of the Father, and this verse tells us that he has seated us with him in the heavenly places. So, who here has ever been to a basketball game? Oh, sorry, I forgot. I'm in the U.S. A football game. Okay, a concert. A show of any description that you have to pay more than like $8 to go see. Right? You go to any of these things, you get a ticket. What does the ticket say? Sometimes it says your name, and then it says where you're supposed to go sit. So what do you do? You go up upper bowl, middle bowl, lower bowl, you go and find, you look on the map, right? You go and find your, right? And then you go and you walk up to your seat, and what do you do? You find some other dude sitting there. So you look at your ticket, you look at the seat number, you look at the map, you look at your ticket, right? All this time the guy's looking at you, and then you say, pardon me, sir, in the most polite way that you know how to, and you say, I think you might be sitting in my seat. And he looks at his ticket, which has his seat number on it, and then he's, oh, you know what, I am. And he moves over, moves up, moves down, goes somewhere else, whatever, right? And the point is, 
is that you have been appointed a place to sit. There's been, someone has prepared a place for you. Jesus says, I'm going to prepare a place for you. Listen, I'm gonna tell you something. Some of us, myself included, have this, this wrong belief in our minds. We have this wrong belief that if I can just squeak into heaven, you know what I mean? Like as they're closing the door, if I can just squeak in, right? I'll be the luckiest person on the face of the earth. And I often have this image in my mind that I'm going to be standing way, 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 way back at the wall of heaven because I just squeak through the door, right? And there's like hundreds and millions of people, billions of people standing in front of me and... Jesus is like somewhere way out there in the distance. We do this uh, Father Dawood Lamai conference uh, in, in, uh, in Toronto. Not that Father Dawood is, is Jesus or anything, but like 20,000 people come out to this conference. So I love, I love, I absolutely love Abuna Dawood. I know him personally to some degree and I think he's a great guy. But anyways, the point is this, right? You know, you're sitting in this, in, you're sitting in, in, in this massive complex with 20,000 people and like there's Father Dawood on these massive screens and you can see, you can see like the, the top of his hat like way out there in the distance. That's my image of heaven. And then like some angel's gonna come up and he's like, yeah, can you see all right? And I'll say no. And he'll hand me a pair of binoculars and I'll look and I'll be like, hey, now I can see what's going on, right? And I'm going to enjoy heaven, right, from, from like the peanut gallery, right, from the nosebleed section of the stadium, right? And I, and, it's gonna, and, and I know I don't even deserve to be there, like King David says Psalm 83, so I'm going to feel so lucky to be the, the last dude in the nosebleed section with my binoculars just taking it all in, right? I'll tell you, this is a 100% wrong belief. It's like etched into my mind, but it's wrong. Because my place is not at the very top of the nosebleed section in the very last seat in the stadium. Jesus has gone to heaven to prepare a place for you and to prepare a place for me. And that place is right there on his lap. You have a place prepared for you, your name, with your row number, with your seat number, just for you, not for anybody else, just you. You are a member of the body of Christ. You are his beloved child, beloved child of God, and you have a place in Christ Jesus, in the heavenly places. Center stage, not courtside seats. Dude on the court. That is, I used to coach basketball for like four or five years, and I know you'd never imagine such a thing could have happened that I could have coached basketball, but I did for four or five years. That's my friends from Montreal. It's every high school boy's dream to be on an NBA court for a second with the ball in his hands. Just a second. God isn't promising you a second. He's promising you eternity. God isn't promising you the nosebleed section. He's promising you center stage. And that's why when you walk into the church next time, next time you walk into the church, I want you to look at the bosom of the Father and I want you to say, my place is right there. That's my place. That's where I belong. That's where I 
fit in. But Jesus says, if you are of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. I'll never forget the Sunday immediately after November 11th, 20, 2001. Because on that day, um, I was supposed to, you know, it was my turn to give a Sunday school lesson or whatnot. And um, in my Sunday school class, and so I figured, you know what, let's like put the lesson on hold here for a minute. Let's ask these kids how they're coping with all the stuff they are seeing on the news and stuff. So I asked them. Each kid said what they thought and so on. We, we spent some time talking. And then one girl said something I'll never forget. It's the only reason I'll never forget that day, that Sunday, the Sunday after November 11th, 2001. She said, John, if, if the world is supposed to hate us and the world doesn't hate me, does that mean that I'm not following Jesus properly? And of course, of course, I said, oh, of course not. You know, like, you know, sometimes the world will hate you. Most of the time, it won't. most of Jesus' commandments make a lot of sense, and they do. And so on and so on, and I comforted her. But as I was walking out of the classroom, I heard a little voice in my head, you know? Those voices in our head saying to me, Are you sure? Is that right? And I have to say, I still don't have an answer for you. But I'm going to be honest with you, more honest than I was that day. Ask yourself, if the world doesn't hate me at all, like, I fit in, you know, like a fat kid in a candy store. <laughs> you know, I fit right in. Is that right? Is that right? I don't know. I don't know. Pray about that. I need to pray about this. I need to pray about this. Fifteen years later, I'm not any further ahead. Except this time I want to be honest. St. John tells us, we know that we are of God and the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. I don't believe people are bad. I don't believe people are bad. I believe people are made in the image and likeness of God. And when I look into their eyes, I'm looking into the eyes of Almighty God Himself. I believe that if I have the reverence for my fellow man and woman, that I have for the communion table. The message that I'm sharing with the world would be all that much more powerful. You know, as a priest, as a new priest, right? You're not so good at giving communion. Maybe other priests were, right? I wasn't, right? So every now and again, you drop something, right? What happens when you drop something? An army of 100,000 deacons with candles swoops in, you know, to find the gem that you dropped. And I am no ways belittling the worth of the body of Christ, and none of it should, should ever fall to the ground, and oh my sin that, that, that I'm not perfect. But... You sometimes think to yourself, like, really? Like, where were you all, like, 
raising Vincent's, right? It was like me and one person, right? And now there's 10,000 of you. Like, like, where did you come up from under the rocks from, right? Right? So, but it's reverence. It's reverence. If I had that reverence for every person that I need, because they're created in the image and likeness of God, wow, wow, what a testament that would be. If I had that reverence for each person that I need. But don't forget that that person still lies under the sway of the wicked one. And sometimes you might find yourself swimming alone. Sometimes you might find my, find my, I might find myself swimming against the flow. And that's okay. And that's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. When I was, um, you know, you do all these different rotations. On one of my rotations, I worked with particularly contentious people. One of the people I worked with, every morning would pick somebody and just shred them to pieces, right? So inevitably, my turn came. See some of you looking at each other like, hey, you're not alone, right? Inevitably, my turn came, right? It was something really, about something really ridiculous, right? Of course, I still remember it. Yes, have nightmares about it up until about a year ago. Yes, of course, yes, right? And we had a visiting surgeon with us from Chile, and no one ever paid attention to these visiting surgeons. So I would like take them for coffee, invite them over for dinner, you know, show them the city and stuff like that, try to take care of them, you know. I was a stranger and you took me in. Nothing that any, you know, person wouldn't do, right? Anyhow, so I, I became friends with this guy, Rodrigo. So Rodrigo's sitting over coffee with me, and he said, you know what uh, so-and-so did to you earlier today? That was really, really inappropriate. I said, yeah, it happens every day to somebody, right? And so today was my turn, big deal, right? He goes, no man, but you have, to, uh, you have to stand up for yourself. You have to defend yourself. And I said, like, why? What, to what end? He said, well, silence is an admission of guilt. When you, when you stay, stay silent, that means you're agreeing with what's being said. I said, I don't agree. I just don't think that it's helpful to talk about it, right? And this conversation went on and on. And in the end, I almost convinced him that it was better to stay silent. Just because I'm swimming against the tide and just because I'm gonna get my wrist slapped for it every now and again, doesn't mean I have to fight back. Doesn't mean I have to say anything. I'm happy with who I am. I'm comfortable with who I am. I'm comfortable with what that means. I'm just gonna live that way. If other people like it, good for them. They don't like it. Good for them. I'm still going to respect them. Just because they're not swimming the way I'm swimming doesn't mean I'm not going to respect them. St. John Chrysostom says, I wanted to share this with you earlier um, in the skinny, with all the skinny jeans slide, but I'll share it with you now. St. John Chrysostom says, Do not use force with any of God's creation because it is His. Especially not your fellow man. Like when we force something, we force someone to do something, we force something, it doesn't work. For the surgeons in the crowd, you know, it's supposed to be easy. Like if you do something and you need to exert brute force, there's very few things you need to exert like brute force in. And when you do, oftentimes, not always, but oftentimes you don't get it right. 
So I don't need to force anybody to do anything. I just need to be happy with who I am. I need to be able to brush my teeth at night, look at myself in the mirror, and be happy with who I've been that day. So what are we going to do about this? Let's try and be at least a little bit practical. The next talk is a lot, of, a lot more practical. But let's be a little bit practical, right? Scripture tells us, tells Joshua, be strong and very courageous. Be careful to obey all the law my servant Moses gave you and do not turn from it to the right or to the left, that you may be successful wherever you go. I, I was so blessed when I was working in that very contentious, on that very contentious rotation. I was so blessed that I had about 15-20 minutes of downtime between morning rounds and when we would report to the surgeons. Somehow I'd always find myself at 15, 20, I'd always find myself standing around the Starbucks in the hospital. And I thought to myself, this is dumb. Like, I'd stand there and I'd catch up with one person and I'd catch up with another person. I'm a people person. I like people. So, you know, it was good, right? Then I realized something. Well, wait a minute. Why don't I catch up with somebody a lot more important than all these people? Why don't I catch up with God? So I'd go and I'd sit in this little office we had and I'd just, I'd just read something. The Bible would read my morning quiet time. I'd read whatever, I, whatever I'm going to read. I'm going to read something from the Bible. And I kid you not, every day God would tell me something, warn me about something, um, give me a commandment, something to do. And I quickly realized that that was my mission. My mission wasn't to, you know, learn how to do this new operation or perfect this or this or impress this person or get a reference letter. All that stuff is peripheral. All that stuff didn't really matter. Because all of that stuff, I'm still reporting to people. I'm still doing it to please people. People who are here today, gone tomorrow. People who say one thing to your face, do something else behind you. They're people. They're good people. I love them. I respect them. But they're people. Right? Who am I trying to please? I realized, I realized all I needed from God was one word. I just needed a word to live by. You know, in olden times, people would go to the desert and they'd go to an elder and they'd say, say a word to me by which I may live. And he'd go away for like 10 years trying to live that commandment. And he'd come back to the Father and say, give me a word by which I may live. Lord, give us a word. Give us a word by which we may live. That we can be strong and very courageous to do it. Don't worry if you're scared. If you're scared, know that God is calling you to courage. Know that God is calling you to do something. My sister said this once in a Sunday school lesson. We served, we served together for a year. It was so inspiring for me. She said, God's assignments will always be something that you cannot do. Because He wants to do them with you. Like, if you feel like you need to do something. Like, I, I really, I gotta do this. This is something I really gotta do. And it's something you can easily handle. Maybe that's an assignment that you want to do. Maybe someone else has given you that assignment, but it sure can come from God. Because God's assignments are almost always way bigger than something we can handle on our own. So don't be scared. Don't be scared if you, if you feel that this isn't a lifestyle you can carry, you can live up to. If you feel this is bigger than you, that's great. That means God is calling you to live it, and He wants to live it with you. I'm so inspired by St. Paul the Hermit. St. Anthony goes to visit St. Paul the Hermit. 80 years, this man has not seen the face of another human being. What do you think the first thing you would say if you met somebody after 80 years of not having had any human contact whatsoever? He asks St. Anthony four questions. Let's see if I can remember them. He says, is the ruler a tyrant? Is there pestilence? Is there famine? 
and is there war? Now, when I get to the kingdom, when we get to the kingdom, we'll ask St. Paul why he asked those four questions. But for now, all we can do is guess. Why do, what do you think? Why did St. Paul ask those questions of St. Anthony? Like, why were those, that was the most pressing thing he wanted to know? Okay, before you answer that question, have you ever prayed for somebody who here has ever in their whole entire life prayed for something in somebody else's life? Wow, nobody. Oh my goodness. This is terrible. <laughs> or you're all asleep, which is not so terrible. Right? When you pray for somebody, after a while of praying for them, you want to know, like, did it work out? Did it not? Did he get the job? Did he not? Did he pass their exam? Did they not? You want to know how did it go? I bet you St. Paul had been praying, St. Paul the Hermit, had been praying for 80 years for the well-being of the world, the well-being of humankind. And he wanted to know. So, I answered my prayers. How'd it go? How's it going out there? St. Paul the Hermit lived in solitude, but he certainly wasn't alone. If you look at the lives of the other hermits as well, St. Caras and all these, all these people, when they die, like, when they, when they depart, forgive me, a, a, you know, a, like, a procession comes from heaven. St. Mark the Hermit, oh my goodness, the Lord Jesus Christ, St. Mary, the seven archangels, Isaiah, Jeremiah, all these, like heaven, the entirety of heaven came down to receive their soul. These people were living in a heavenly community. Were they alone? Absolutely not. Did they live in solitude? Yes. There's a big difference though between solitude, being away from the world, and being in a heavenly environment. And being alone. God is calling you and is calling me to live out this heavenly life every day in our workplaces. To take your favorite saint with you. To take your best friends in heaven with you. To take the prayers of your loved ones with you. You're having a hard time? Ask people to pray with you and know that their prayers are with you. Your mom, your cousin, your whoever, your priest, your saint, monk, whoever in the desert you ask them to pray for you, they're, they're coming with you. They're coming with you to work. And you have your own little heavenly environment in which you can live and in which you can enjoy the miracles of God day to day. And it's there that you fit in. But maybe, maybe some days I will fit in at work and maybe some days I won't. Glory be to God forever.